the evidence of the eyewitness testimony within the Gospels is overwhelming. There is no doubt that the modern church in America has failed its people by not teaching them the earliest stages of church history. Thank you for tuning into Facts, a podcast that primarily focuses on the church fathers, the apocryphal works, the canon of scripture, the text of scripture, and the scripture itself. You can find more information about us on explorechristianity.net. Thank you again for tuning in. And yes, thank you for tuning into this program. This will be a shorter program, but I think it's an essential program. It is something that I have been thinking about for years as I've studied the New Testament and studied the patristics and the church history behind the fathers. And I've become more enamored with what happened to the New Testament documents, the doctrine and the theology of the apostles right after they died, particularly when they were dying off and then shortly after the period between John the Apostle and Ignatius and Clement and Polycarp. These men that continued on the tradition of the apostles after they passed away. There is an attack on the New Testament scriptures that their validity cannot be trusted. The Christians were biased. There was an agenda. There was a conspiracy. This is what is being portrayed. Anonymous texts made it into the New Testament churches. They were just accepting anything that sounded good or felt good or had some sort of correlation to Jesus. The Gospels are anonymous. They just accepted them. They're just Christians at different parts of the world who wrote legends and myths and some truths and compiled it together and made what is today the Gospels. This is what we're being told. This is what our young people are being educated with. We're being told that we have created a narrative to feel good and secure. Recently, I was told in a panel that it is a psychological attachment issue. It's all psychological. It's trauma. We need something to feel secure in. We need something to hold on to, to give us hope, to make it through. And we'll create history the way we want it in order to substantiate the text that we have. That's what we're being told. Folks, I, I'm, I'm burdened about this. This is something that I am starting to really pay closer attention to, as well as educate my children that much deeper, catechize that much more and often. If you have not found at this point in your life and in your families that the attacks on the faith, and particularly our texts that defend and substantiate and define our faith, are under the greatest attacks. And I know that every generation feels that way. I mean, the liberalism came in and the churches had to really fight this off and deal with this. We've seen attacks come in, even in church history. The corruption of the text, whether it was by Marcion, or the newness of theology that exceeded the time of the apostles and created this new network of theology like Gnosticism, like Arianism, 
You see, we're not facing heresies as much as we are lies. And I don't mean lies from a Christian. Heresies are lies, but they're lies from a Christian name. The attack is a lie about our texts. The atheist world, the skeptic world, the anti-Christian world have risen up to be the experts on Christian texts. This is new. The arguments about the text were always within sectarian forms and the original churches. Whether it was outside texts like the Gnostic texts coming into the churches, confusing people as to where they came from, their correspondence, their relationship to the apostles, their theology in contact with all the other writings they had already received, that caused havoc and confusion of itself. But those were coming from other people professing to be followers of Jesus. This isn't Mormonism, where a New Testament is being created through the unveiled prophecies and realities that were brought about by Joseph Smith. This isn't another theology that is branched off into another sectarian group, like the Seven-Day Adventists or, or the Jehovah's Witnesses. This is not another Christian against Christian entitled debate. This isn't an argument about who's doing the best exegesis on the passages. This isn't an argument about what's happening out there between this theology and that theology, this eschatology and that eschatology, this ecclesiology and that ecclesiology. That is not the main fight. Oh, it's still here. I'm not excusing the reality that we still have this fight happening amongst ourselves. But what I am saying is the greatest fight, the greatest attack on the New Testament has far exceeded the world of theology wars. The postmodern, post-enlightenment culture are now the experts, the professors, the teachers of the New Testament texts. And not just the New Testament, the Old Testament. Dr. James White said years ago, um, when I was listening to one of his programs, and, and, and actually I've, I've wanted to talk to him more about this in one of our side conversations, but he's been busy, I've been busy, we haven't caught up as of recent. But he said something that I'll never forget. He said, we gave up the Old Testament to the liberals years ago. And, and, and through that portal of giving up the Old Testament to the liberals, now it's not just the liberals that are professionals with the Old Testament text, it is atheist. It is skeptics. You see, we, we have done something horrible. We haven't educated ourselves in the text. And now, the enemy of the faith is better equipped, greater in understanding, more sound in exegesis in some ways, more familiar with our texts than we ourselves in the church. It's a sad day. It's a sad day. And so what's happened 
is now we're having to do damage control. And we're watching this happen from a very, very close view. I stated this just recently on, on my social media platform that there is no greater arrogance than the belief system that is being pushed against Christianity today that believes that they understand the original writings of the New Testament text better than those who are actually the recipients and the contemporaries of those who wrote the New Testament texts. You see, we're in a post-lightment culture. We understand things. We have greater knowledge. We know more 2,000 years later than they know then. And that we today are just accepting a bunch of Christian bias that's been passed down to us. There's no track record. There's no, there's no correspondence that can be demonstrated through history. This is just fantasy, phoniness, rainbows and unicorns. That's what Christianity is. It's out of touch with reality. It's out of date. We've been believing wrong all these years. Folks, I want to address this. And I want to show you that the chain of custody, which I use that term a lot in this program, and I continually, I will continually do so because we need to understand how we got our texts. We need to understand that we are not living in fantasy land. We're not flipping coins and hoping it lands in the proper place where we, we, you know, heads, this is in, tails, that one's out. This isn't some sort of charade. This is legit. <laughs> we are standing on historical reality and biblical truth together. We're not just holding to some wishful theology that's backed by nothing. Here's, here's where I get frustrated with that part right there. But what else comes into the equation is also what makes me frustrated. We do not know how the early church operated with the texts. We can't answer anything about the text today in the modern church because the modern church doesn't understand even how they got the Bible that is in their hand. They can't even give you a basic elementary layout from the time of the apostles to the translations of the English texts and how that took place. Not even in the basic elementary format. I want to talk today about the early bishops and how the early bishops of the New Testament churches saved the New Testament from corruption. I, I really, I'm getting at the point where I, I, I don't worry about what people think or feel. I, I really don't care what your view is of bishopric and the early church apostolic succession. However you feel about that, I need you to leave that to the side for a minute and just explore historical reality with how they operated with the New Testament. It's essential. Tertullian, the lawyer from Rome, 
who went down to North Africa and wrote tremendous defenses of the New Testament and the churches themselves. He has a lengthy paragraph here that I, I want us to focus in on various things that were said in him. He says, but if there be any heresies which are bold enough to plant themselves in the midst of the apostolic age, that they may thereby seem to have been handed down by the apostles because they existed in the time of the apostles. All right, so here's what he's saying in this first paragraph. If there's a heresy, a teaching that is coming in and they're bold enough to say, we gained this knowledge from the apostles. What we believe has been true from now to the time of the apostles. That's the claim. Something is claiming to be apostolic and from the apostles. That could be a doctrine. That could be a text. Every single one of the Gnostic Gospels, just about every single one of them, has a name of an apostle and a claim of an apostle in the text. The heresies that broke down, even in Gnosticism, claim to go back to James the Just and certain sects of it, uh, back to John. I mean, there are multiple heresies that get claimed to be teachings or traditions from a certain apostle. And here's Tertullian, who's saying, if this is the claim that comes in, he goes on to say, we can say, let them produce the original records of their churches. Let them unfold the role of their bishops running down in due succession from the beginning in such a manner that the first bishop of theirs shall be able to show for his ordainer and predecessor some one of the apostles or of apostolic men. Now let's 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 back up and rehash what's being said here. If that's the case, if you're saying this teaching or this text is from the apostles, let's pull out the church records. What church records are they talking about? Two things are described here. Remember, these churches are started by the apostles themselves. These are original churches. These are churches started by Peter and John and James and Paul. These are the original churches. And so in those churches, they sent texts to those churches. It's what I talked about before with Polycarp in the last program. When he was writing to the church at Philippi, he admonished them to go back and read the text in which Paul had written to them prior. And that in reading that text, it would create faith in them. The text that Paul wrote to the Philippians was still utilized and believed on in the church 70 to 80 years after Paul was dead. Still being used as scripture, as authoritative. See, the apostles did not just leave some statements and then die. Many of them left texts. Paul left many. John left texts. 
Matthew working with the church of Jerusalem, as I've demonstrated in these programs on Matthew, left texts, a text, a gospel on behalf of the church of Jerusalem. Mark for Peter, left text. Peter sent epistles. Jude and James, the brothers of the Lord, both left epistles. We have instruction from the apostles. John's gospel being a group gospel, which probably included others like Philip and Andrew. Again, go back and listen to my programs on the Johannine authorships. These realities, these churches that were planted by these apostles, left their text with them, then died. And those texts continued to be copied and practiced and believed and read and studied from then on. So when a new text piles itself into the church with Peter's name on it. After Peter is dead, it's suspect. It's not accepted. If a text comes in the church and there's no way to validate its origin, where it came from, it's not on record. It was rejected. The idea that these churches were just accepting anonymous texts is ridiculous and unhistorical. They did not just take anything and everything that came flooding in and said, oh, that sounds really good. We'll add that one in here. Origin of the text. Who it came from dictated the church's recipient, as them as a recipient would even receive it. The messenger that brought the text. There was a chain of custody between writer and recipient. We've gone over this multiple times. And they started compiling the text of the apostles that were given to the churches. And they were taking these letters and passing them on to their daughter and sister churches. That's what happened in Colossians. Paul said, when you're done reading this letter to your congregation, to send it over to Laodicea. Copy it, send it to Laodicea. That's what would have been the process. And they were continually passing these on through a chain of connection and the custody between the apostle and the appointed leaders in the church. And so what we have here is claimed connection to the apostles by word or by text. And Tertullian says, let's bring out the paperwork. Let's pull up the original records of the churches, the churches the apostles started. Let them unfold the role of the bishops. Look at the list of the names of the bishops from the apostles to their successors. And he says, they should be able to show whether or not the succeeding bishops, the predecessors of the apostles or the apostolic men being like Mark or Luke or Timothy or Titus or Clement or Polycarp, and he'll mention them in a minute, check their records. Have they affirmed these? Have they taught this? You see, what's happened here is, is, is there's a defense mechanism that was established by the apostles, which was sound wisdom. 
And it seems like the rule in the code of ethics is this. Receive nothing except by our hand. They were dealing with this when the apostles were alive. This isn't hard to believe. Paul was saying, look, I don't care if you get an angel from heaven, a messenger from a, whoever. Let them be an anthem if they're teaching a different message than what you first received from us. Paul's recognizing his letters were being forged, started writing his own salutations in his own hand in big letters in order to authenticate his work. This stuff was happening while they're alive. You don't think they set up boundaries and protection? This wasn't a post-apostle issue. This was a current issue when the apostles were alive. They were dealing with leaders who are out of hand. John, writing to Diotrephes and 3rd John, would not heed him, would not heed the whole apostolic group. They had to deal with this stuff. They set up a chain of custody and a defense to protect the text and the, and the interpretation of those texts through succession. And when somebody came rolling into the church, oh, we got this from Peter. Oh, we got this from James. We were disciples of James. Really? Show me. We have James's letter. We have Peter's letter. We also have the succession list of bishops who were trained by these men. We know Peter. We know Clement. Who are you? We know John. We know Polycarp. Who are you? We don't know you. That's what's happening. That's what's taking place. He goes on to say, a man, moreover, who continued steadfast with the apostles. For this is the manner in which the apostolic churches transmit their registration of bishops. As the church of Smyrna, which records that Polycarp was placed therein by John, and also the church of Rome, which makes Clement to have been ordained in a like manner by Peter. He's giving examples of how it works, just like I did a second ago. Notice what he says. The apostolic churches transmitted their registration of bishops like this. This is how they did it. The leader, the founder of this church was John, was Peter. Their successors are going into the list here. Polycarp, left in Smyrna by John, Clement, after Peter. The succession of bishops is now a reality. This is an amazing thing that's transpiring in the apostolic churches. They have a defense. They have a system. This thing does not permit random, anonymous, unknown works to just pile on in or even good, well-meaning Christians who have an opinion about Jesus or the apostles. It does not work that way. That's not the way this is going to go. We need to see this. We need to see this. The churches 
are using the system and Tertullian is stating this is how they do it. Then he goes on to say this as uh, in exactly the same way, the other churches likewise exhibit their several worthies whom as having been appointed to their Episcopal places by apostles, they regard as transmitters of the apostolic seed. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because there's much room for debate, but what he's getting into is when you look at all of the other churches that exhibit the same kind of setup because they were started by either an apostle themselves or they were a sister or daughter church off of the apostles, they they followed this same transmitted apostolic seed they come from the same original source they are their extensions of the original church they too had to adopt this system do you see that do you see what's happening here in the writings it's it's incredible to me that we have this mentality now in secular uh theology that has now made themselves to be uh the the experts on the New Testament text that we 2000 years removed without multitudes of documentation that they had, we know better 2000 years later than they know. than they knew while they were living in the age of the apostles and many of them knew the apostles themselves or were disciples off of those who knew the apostles like Irenaeus, like Tertullian, these people were countering any doctrine, thought, theology, person, or text off of what they knew from the past and what they learned from the apostles themselves. It's extraordinary, but brilliant. He goes on to say, let the heretics contrive something of the same kind for after their blasphemy, what is there that is unlawful for them to attempt? But should they even affect the uh, contrivance that they should not advance a step? For their very doctrine, after comparison with that of the apostles, will declare by its own diversity and that which is contrary, that it had for its author neither an apostle nor an apostolic man. Because as the apostles would never have taught things which were self-contradictory, so the apostolic man would not have in in uh, calculated teachings different from the apostles, unless they had received their instruction from the apostles that went and preached in a contrary matter. Here's what Tertullian's getting at. He is now not only defending, he's challenging. He's not only defending their status and their way of doing things. He's now going to actually up the ante a little bit and go, hey, now you show me a system that you have like that. Do you have that system? If you don't have that system, you weren't started by an apostle. And if you don't have that system, you weren't started by one of the apostolic men of the apostles. And if you don't have that system, you're not only not an apostles church or an apostolic men's church, you're not a daughter church of any of the sort. He says, it's blasphemy. He says, show me, show me that system. Can you prove it? Because your system is self-contradictory to what the apostles' texts say. You're saying you got the apostles' name attached here. We have the apostles' texts. I mean, that's, that's what they're saying. It's neither has for its author an apostle or an apostolic man. There's a contradiction. 
And if the apostles changed their mind about something, the churches would have received this instruction. And so the apostolic men and a revision would have been made. Show me the revision. Show me the man that revised it. Show me the source of its origin. And I love the words of Tertullian here. To this test, therefore, will they be submitted for proof by those churches who, although they derive not their founder from apostles or apostolic men as being a much later date, for they are in fact being found daily. I, Folks, I can, I'm about to jump out of my chair here. I'm going to read that line slower and I'm going to let it sink in to what Tertullian is saying. He has watched these churches operate in this manner. To this test, therefore, will they be submitted for proof by those churches who, although they derive not their founder from the apostles or apostolic men as being a much later date, for they are in fact being found daily. Yet, since they agree in the same faith, they are counted as not less apostolic because they are kin in doctrine. He's saying, look, th these churches want to move into an apostolic connection. Even though they're later in date from the apostles or the apostolic men, what they submit as proof will allow them to be associated and connected to the other churches that were started by apostles and apostolic men. Because they agree in the same faith. They are counted as not less apostolic because they are kin in doctrine. So there are some churches that go through this testing and saying, we've received these documents. Maybe a traveling preacher Maybe they heard uh, the word of the Lord. Maybe they're like the, the, the Ethiopian eunuch who ended up going to Jerusalem and grabbing a random copy of Isaiah at that time and walked out and, and took off in his carriage and started reading it. Maybe these texts were being transmitted and, and individuals got a hold of them and came to follow and believe in them. And so these churches are being formed under the teaching of Jesus and they're now being questioned and put to the test. And what is on them is essential. Hey, you have Peter's letter. Hey, you have John's gospel. Hey, you have Mark's gospel. You have Paul's letters. Yeah, we do. Yeah. What do you believe about those letters? We believe this. And, and our leader is, is this guy, and he learned and heard Polycarp preach in Smyrna. And, and, and Polycarp talked about John, and, and then we got this gospel with John's name on it, and it validated what Polycarp was saying, and we became followers. They passed the test based on the text that lined up, the teachings that lined up and their faith in them being the same doctrine, their kin in doctrine. And therefore they are no less apostolic than the physical church. Paul walked in one day. But if they do not pass that test, 
they are shunned as heretical. So then he says, let then all the heresies, which challenged to these two tests by our apostolic church, offer their proof of how they deem themselves to be apostolic. But in truth, they neither are so, nor are they able to prove themselves to be what they are not, nor are they admitted to peaceful relations and communion by the such churches as are in any way connected with the apostles, inasmuch as they are in no sense themselves apostolic because their diversity as to the mysteries of the faith. What he is saying is that these two tests, are you started by an apostle? Are you started by an apostolic man? If not, show me your doctrine and where you learned it. Show me your texts and what you're reading and believing. And if the texts are the same texts that the apostolic and apostolic men and their churches have, and the theology and the doctrine and by which you affirm in them, is the same that the ones that the apostles' churches and apostolic men's churches have, then you are permitted into the apostolic fellowship because you are kin and doctrine and of the same faith. But if you cannot do that, your diversity of mysterious faith is not allowed in the fellowship of the apostles' churches excommunicated. Now, it sounds harsh, but it's needed. <clears throat> it's essential that this actually took place. Expulsion needed to happen to people who were bringing in damnable heresies. This was one of the greatest times of attack on the, the, the New Testament. People trying to pull a fast one. Text with the apostles' names coming in. Why is it that all the churches are expelling them? They're doing the same thing. See, this is what happened. This is why over time, see, they're not picking texts. They're using what was given to them. And they're carrying that same text on and, and reading it and studying it and living by it. That's why when the, the Council of Carthage wrote to the Council of Rome, as I talked about later in history, they weren't like, hey, we picked these books. Did, did you pick the same ones? They said, these are the texts that were handed down to us. Do you have the same ones handed to you? A church in North Africa, writing to a church in Rome about which are, are, why? Why did they do that? Why did they fact check their list with another apostolic church? Because so many of the churches we're getting bombarded with forgeries and, and people that are doing heresy with the texts. And so they send it. And as I stated in this program before, the Council of Carthage had 27 New Testament books. So did the, the Council of, uh, of Rome. And they're the same 27 books of the New Testament that we have. They didn't pick them. How, how is it that the church in Rome ended up with the same 27 passed down to them? 
and the Church of North Africa, where Tertullian is, had the same passed down to them. How did that happen? Because Tertullian, who was in North Africa before that council ever met, years before that council ever met, was establishing this is how the churches are doing it. This is how the churches are protecting the text, the doctrine, the theology, and the tradition. Here's how it's happening. And by the time we get to the Council of Carthage, a couple hundred years after Tertullian or so, now they're like, okay, so this it went through the tunnel of the protective custody of the churches and bishops. These are the 27 that continually got handed to us because they were from the apostles and their doctrine and theology. Are they the same apostle documents you have? Rome, practicing the same practice, doing the same thing, ended up with the same 27 books. What a coincidence. This isn't a conspiracy, folks. This isn't fake history. This isn't wishful thinking. This isn't psych psych psychological idiocracy. This isn't people that are just trying to find something of, of hope and holding on to it because they have trauma. That's not, the, that, that's not this. This is called real history. That's called doing real work, real custody, real evaluation. These churches knew what they were doing. They knew how to protect their own. And where did they learn that? From the apostles who were facing it when they were alive, set up a chain of custody that would be unbreakable if followed. And the succession of bishops, the people like Clement and Polycarp, Papias did the same thing. A bishop of Heriopolis, a disciple of John, what, what did he say? He said, people come in all the time. So I learned this from Matthew and I learned this from Mark and, or whoever they would be. Papias didn't give all the illustrations I just did, but just I'm giving an illustration. And Papias said, oh, I would I would test what they're saying from, from, from what I learned from the living and abiding voices. I would test what they said based on what Andrew and John and Peter, I would, I would test it off of what they said. Why? Because, because he knew the eyewitnesses. Some guy comes into his church and like, oh, well, we got this from Peter. Did you? Oh, we, we got this from John. Really? Tell me, I knew John. I knew John who knew Peter. You said Peter said that? I've got a, I've got a whole collection of teachings from them. Let's fact check your, your statement against what I have. What is Papias doing in Heriopolis? The same blessed thing that Tertullian was doing in North Africa. Fact-checking it against the apostles and eyewitnesses. He, being a bishop, is practicing what Tertullian said was happening to apostolic men because Papias is an apostolic man. The bishops protected the New Testament through this collection of original records in the churches that unfolded the role of bishops and their teachings and their instructions and their approval and disapproval. This is an amazing thing that's happening here. The bishops of the early church saved the New Testament from corruption. Saved the New Testament churches from full-blown, outright heresy and massive massive destruction. Now, let, let, let me clarify something because I know somebody's going to listen to this program and say, are you saying God had nothing to do with this? Of course he did. This, God said <clears throat> he would preserve his word. 
Jesus said he would build his church. The spirit would, would confirm us and protect us and guide us and lead us. But the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. The, the headquarters of where the truth would reside. And it is through this method that God and his sovereign wisdom, through the power of the spirit, through the commission of the son of God, to protect his message and his commandments by putting a church together by ordained apostles who would carry on the teachings that Jesus said for them to make disciples as he made them his disciples. And that in doing so, they're passing on the teaching. But Jesus wasn't ignorant of what his disciples would go into. He said, I'm sending you out there amongst wolves. And that there would be wolves in sheep's clothing. You will suffer persecution. You will be hauled up before rulers. Evil will come upon you. This is what, this is what Jesus told them would happen. And he was setting up protective boundaries for them. He was setting up realistic expectations and his apostles carried that on to the next generation. The succession of bishops in not just Rome, I'm sorry, Rome didn't just have succession. They all did. Any church started by an apostle or an apostolic man had a, a apostolic succession to it, including faith-based doctrine churches who aligned with those, as Tertullian said were given the blessing of communion with the apostolic churches. Within this format, the chain of custody, the defense mechanisms that were established, the bishops of the early church did, in fact, save the New Testament from corruption, both in text form and interpretation. Through this lineage of original records the church has held that unfolded the role of the bishopric from the beginning of the apostles to the apostolic men to those that were trained by him. That would include apostles being the ones, the 12, and then the apostolic men being any of the eyewitnesses that were around like Aristion or John the Elder, and then their successors as well. I mean, you have people like Luke, you have people like Mark, who started the churches in Alexandria. You you have all of these other people that are involved in this, that are trained by them. Polycarp, Papias, Clement, Ignatius. We mentioned these men. Then they trained men. Polycarp trained Irenaeus. Tertullian was trained in this lineage. They are now disciples of these apostolic men. And they're following the formation. And we have Tertullian recording as a disciple of an apostolic church defender that this is how we do it this is how the apostolic churches do it and if it doesn't fit the mold if it doesn't pass the two test system failure heresy not allowed no communion no reception they were not just taking in everything and anything that came in their door with an apostle's name or a jesus movement teaching in it it did not happen we need to come back to reality. 
We need to stop listening to, we need to take the texts we're left in the church's jurisdiction to protect. And by goodness, it is time that we, as saints of God, defend the faith that was once delivered to the saints. That is the texts. The faith delivered to the saints is the texts. They were left to us to live and believe and defend. I'm done letting atheists who are bitter against Christianity or have some vendetta be the expert of a text they don't even believe in. But boy, they have the opinion out there. They have the persuasion. Listen, I'm not saying they're all bad, horrible people. I'm friends with a lot of the atheists out there. Let me clarify that, lest one of them listen in. But when I look at any religious system, I, I, I expect that. The, when I want to know the history of, of, of Islam and the Quran, I don't go to the Christians and ask their opinion. I just don't. It's not their text. I'm not saying that they can't have an opinion about it. I'm not saying they can't write about it. I'm not saying they can't study it and become an expert on it. But I'm not starting with the Christian's opinion of the text about, about the Quran. The thing is, we have forfeited our text. There was a time when the saints defended these. And now, now, we have a low defense because, one, we don't read and study them ourselves. Those that oppose the text have done greater work of study than us. It's time we learn to carry the mantle that was set before us. We start applying these principles that men of wisdom did many, many, many years ago. Popular opinion about the New Testament in modern day era means nothing to me. We're going to do right history. We're not just going to do right history by the Bible. We're going to do right history by the Greco-Roman world and what they wrote about, their historians, their texts, their philosophers. We're going to do the same thing when we study the other works that are out there. It's When I studied the Quran and I did a debate against a, a Muslim about almost two years ago now, I didn't sit there and get all the Christian opinion about it. I investigated their texts, their writings, their authors, their eyewitnesses to Muhammad. That's what I did. That's the fair thing to do. We're going to apply this principle, folks. If, 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 you're, if you're listening to this podcast regularly, you're involved in what's being discussed here. We have to do that. We apply these principles to all ancient texts. But when it comes to the word of God that we have come to believe and defend, we need to outstudy our opponent. We need to outdo the history and the investigation of history. It is, it is high time that the saints of God defend the faith that was once delivered to the saints that began with the apostles and, their pre and those that succeeded them and their disciples and their writings and what they are stating like Tertullian the days are over of playing ignorant 
or blind faith. The early bishops saved the New Testament from corruption. I am 100% convinced of this. After studying this for, I don't even know how long it's been. It's been on a back burner study going on for years, but I've intent with intensity have studied it at least over a year now. But it's been in a back burner study for a while. And after studying Tertullian and studying Irenaeus and looking at the the way that these patristics wrote, and and Clement of Alexandria and Origen and just examining what they're saying, Eusebius, Jerome. It is abundantly clear to me that they knew what they were doing and they were able to create a system of defense, a chain of custody that could not be broken because checks and balances were there. Yes, God did it because he said he would preserve his word, but this is the method in which God did it, regardless of how you feel about apostolic succession, regardless of how you feel about the office of the bishop, this is the historical method God used to protect and save the New Testament from corruption and from the not only being corrupted, but removed or replaced. That's the historical reality. Well, I got a little worked up in this episode, and uh, I'm, I'm sorry if I did, but I'm not sorry. This needs to be said. This discussion needs to happen. Thank you for tuning in. I trust that the Lord will use this to challenge your mind to think differently, to act differently, to study differently as we continue in this endeavor. Grace and peace to you.